Well, those of you in uh, Cedar Lake, you already know some of these stories. You know some of these people and many others who are being blessed there. One of the reasons we share this video is that if, uh, if you are simply in, in Crown Point, at the Crown Point campus, uh, you don't know what's going on in some of these other places. You might sit there, they could be really great to know what's going on in the other places. Well, that's why we're sharing this and saying, listen, there is fruit that is being born in these other places. We anticipate the same in, uh, in, our, in, our, new, in our new locations. And uh, we want to tell these stories. This is about people. It's about life. It's about Jesus and the gospel and kingdom advancement. And this is going on, and we praise God for it. A quick funny story about uh, 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 the John von Faden there that was in the video. We happened to have uh, he and his wife over to our house for dinner. And uh, we, we didn't really know them, and they came in, and they sat down, and we were introducing them and some others that were over, and they, they, he said, my name's John Von Faden. And I said, that's a cool-sounding name. I said, it sounds like it ought to be John Von Faden III. He says, it is. <laughs> what a cool name, John Von Faden III. Just sounds like royalty, you know. So anyway, kind of fun. Well, as many of you know, I love the game of golf. I have played golf since I was uh, four. My dad played golf. He would drag me along at the, at the, to the golf courses. I had a little Chichi Rodriguez golf set that I grew up on. And I've loved the game of golf really all of my life. And, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you love golf, you love watching golf. I remember growing up watching golf. In fact, I remember... One of my fond memories of uh, watching golf, I remember the 1986 Masters, where the old man Jack Nicklaus pulled it back together one more time at the ripe age of 46 years old to win one more Masters. Nobody could believe the old man could do it. And uh, I turned 46 in three months, so this might be my year. Uh, to pull it all together, we'll see. I don't know. I have also attended some golf tournaments. And if, if you're a golfer, it's, it's great to watch it on TV, but it's not as great as going and actually watching a tournament. Because here you're seeing the guys that you watch on TV uh, in, in the flesh, and you're seeing their swing, you're seeing how they play, and it's, it's a great time. In fact, some years ago, I took uh, our pastoral staff up to Medina when the, Medina was hosting uh, the U.S. Open, and and I'm the only golfer. I was the only golfer at the time, and I thought it was great. And I think everybody else thought it was okay to go, but we had we had a nice time. I have been able to attend over the years some pretty cool tournaments, and one of the one of the coolest was in 2002, uh, the PGA Championship. There are four majors in in golf. And every golfer knows the four majors. And if right now you're going, let's see, the four, you're not a golfer, is what that means. But the, the real golfers know the four majors. Uh, they're the big tournaments of the year. And uh, the PJ Championship is one of those tournaments. And in 2002, Hazel Teen Country Club in Minneapolis was hosting the tournament. I was able to get some tickets. My best buddy growing up lives there, went up, saw him, stayed with him. We went to the tournament. And uh, I remember on that Sunday that uh, it was one of these tournaments. Tiger was in his prime, 
And uh, a guy named Rich Beam was leading the tournament, but Tiger was making one of these late runs, and he's running up the leaderboard, you know, birdie, birdie, birdie. Everybody's excited. Normally in a tournament, you know, uh, people, they start leaving, you know, towards the end. Nobody left this tournament. Everybody wanted to see what was happening. And I don't know if you've ever seen 45,000 people jammed onto a par three and a par four. But that, it, it was crazy. I remember standing at that par three, watching Tiger tee off. There were people everywhere. It was literally wall to wall. And I remember looking over and seeing people climbing the trees in order to see Tiger Woods play golf. And I thought to myself, if I ever preach on Zacchaeus, I am going to tell this story. And now I have. Now I have. So as you turn to Luke 19, which is our text, we are here in the midst of these seven weeks of Mission Them. Such a critical time in the story of our church. We've been talking about themes that are important for this next chapter to be successful. We talked about ethnic diversity And how the gospel is for red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. There is one church. We've uh, talked about our personal responsibility to be a part of evangelism and kingdom work. That this isn't just something the church does. The church is people. The church is us. This is something that all of us are to be involved in. And we took a look at what Jesus says in... The Sermon on the Mount, when he said, Do not lay up treasures on earth, where moth and rust decay, and where thieves break in and steal, but rather uh, lay up treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not decay, and thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we continue to explore that theme with the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. So we pick it up here, Luke 19, verse 1. It begins by saying this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now we'll stop right there. Let's identify who the he is. In the Gospels, if it's just he, it's a really good guess that it's talking about Jesus. So Jesus is the he. And it says that he was passing through Jericho. Now Jericho is a famous place from the Old Testament. You remember Joshua uh, fought the battle of Jericho and all that Israel did there. Uh, Jericho is one of the oldest cities in antiquity, an ancient fortress. Uh, and also, Jericho is in the Jordan Valley. And if you uh, take a look at a geographical map, a topographical map of, uh, of the Middle East, you'll see that there is this flat valley in a predominantly mountainous area where the Jordan River flowed from the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea. And so if you were, if you were walking from north to south or from south to north, The rest of the country is very hilly, but the Jordan Valley is flat. And so would you rather walk through Indiana or Colorado? Now that's an easy choice, isn't it? And so Jesus is choosing Indiana, the Indiana walk down the Jordan Valley, and he is passing through. But wait, there's somebody that he wanted to meet here. Look at verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not 
because he was small in stature. Now, here we have the infamous Zacchaeus. If you don't know about Zacchaeus and your kids are in the children's ministry, just ask them. They'll sing you a song. The famous Zacchaeus. And we find here Luke including three details about this fellow. First of all, it says he was a chief tax collector. Now, this is very important to the story. And when it came to tax collecting, the Romans were brilliant. And the way that they collected taxes, the way they financed their whole imperial kingdom was that they had a network of tax collectors throughout the entire Roman Empire. These were primarily local residents who worked for the Romans. And their job was to collect the taxes from the local residents and to pass them on up the chain up to, uh, up to Rome. Well, uh, the rules regarding how they did this were rather loose. The Romans didn't, frankly, care that much about how they got their money as long as they got their money. And so with that lax rules then, the Roman IRS agents had great freedom to basically operate the way that they wanted to operate, which of course was fertile ground for massive corruption, massive uh, fraud, and the abuse of power that they had to extort money from the local residents and to skim money off the top, which is exactly what uh, they would do. And so in the social ladder, guess who were the bottom of the barrel? It was the tax collectors. They were thought of essentially as being thieves, uh, scoundrels, and traitors. And why were they considered that? Well, they worked for the Romans. And the Romans were the ones who had invaded the country. And they were the ones that were you know, dominating and exerting power in land that the Jews thought was their land that God had given to them. And so to work for the Romans was really to be the bottom of the barrel. I mean, that was, that was the Benedict. They were the Benedict Arnolds. They were the traitors. I can't believe that any good Jew would take money from Jews and give it to the Romans. And added to that was the fact that because of this corruption these tax collectors became personally wealthy. And everybody knew that the wealth that they had had been extorted from them. So did that make them particularly popular? No, not at all. Not at all. Now, interestingly, on top of this, notice that it says that he was not simply a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. It's the only place in the New Testament this word is used. And it means that Zacchaeus was not just your run-of-the-mill tax collector. He was, the, he was the top dog. And we know from history that in Israel there were three centers where all of the tax dollars from the whole country uh, channeled. In Capernaum in the north and in the south in Jerusalem and in Jericho. Which means that, supposedly, almost a third of all of the tax revenue from the entire country passed through Zacchaeus's fingers. You want to talk about a place to be if you just want to have a lot of money. To be the chief tax collector in one of three 
locations that had all of the tax money. Now that's a place that you could get rich. And indeed, he was very rich. So do not think of this guy as being, you know, your very upright IRS agent. And I did not mean that as a joke, but you can laugh if you want. Uh, this is, this is, think John Gotti, think Tony Soprano. This is the head mobster of a, of a tax cartel that was famous for its corruption, for its uh, favoritism, for it picking out who it wanted to extort from and who it didn't. This is not a man who got this position because of his perfect Sunday school attendance. Okay? He was ambitious, he was greedy, and he was corrupt. He was a traitor to his own people. The last thing that Luke highlights is probably the thing that Zacchaeus is famous for, uh, and that is that he was small in stature. So Zacchaeus was vertically challenged. He was a hobbit. Now, here is where the PGA Championship, I think, is so helpful because when, when you realize, when you get a lot of people together and the ground is flat and, I mean, it's, it's, you know, 25 people deep, what can you see? Especially if you are a hobbit. You can't see anything. And Zacchaeus did not become the head of the tax cartel uh, by not being a resourceful guy. He was creative, if anything. And so Zacchaeus desperately wants to see Jesus. There's a massive crowd. Jesus is passing through town. He can't see anything. And so what does he do? Notice verse 4. He ran ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now here in this part of the story, there is so much raw human experience. I mean, I think that, you know, we don't know Zacchaeus' spiritual background. He was a Jew, so presumably... He was raised as a Jew. He was raised in the Jewish teachings, raised like all the others. Yet clearly, at some point in his life, he had turned away from the God of Israel. He had turned to corruption. He had turned to fraud. And his life had been dominated by um, you know, just all of that mess. Now, we know that John the Baptist ministered in this area. It's possible that he might have heard John the Baptist preach. He might have heard about this Jesus of Nazareth and his miracles. He might have heard even of some of Jesus' teachings. What we definitely know is that there was a spiritual curiosity that was in his heart. And maybe you can relate to that here today. Maybe there is a curiosity. You've come to church. There's, you're not in a tree, but you're in church, and you're wondering, why do, I, why do I have this longing? Why is there clearly something missing in my life? We see in Zacchaeus 
this stirring, don't we? It says in verse 4, he ran on ahead. That's not the actions of a, of a wealthy, aristocratic sort of guy. There he goes. He lifts up his expensive cloak and he runs. He gets to the tree and he climbs the tree. Now, I'm going to guess most of us have probably climbed a tree in our lives. But do you see a lot of adults up in trees? I don't see adults up in trees very much. And yet there goes Zacchaeus climbing the tree. Why would he run? Why would he climb a tree? I don't think it's that hard, is it, to really understand the pain of this man? He was a human being who long ago had sold his money or sold his soul to money and to power. He was uh, greedy, and that greed was greater than his sense of patriotism as a Jew. It was greater than his desire to be respected by his friends. It was greater than his desire to be respected by his family. He threw out his Jewishness. He threw out his family. He threw out his friends so that he could have the almighty dollar. He became obsessed with money and the, and the, the, the accumulating of money and power and the things that money could buy. Let me ask you, who brings cookies to a tax collector's house? Who stops by and says, hey, how's it going at the tax collector's house? And yet we know he was very wealthy and very powerful. So think about Zacchaeus. Great big house, piles of money, no friends, no respect, lonely. Because as we all know, money can't buy you happiness, can it? And Zacchaeus was living out that truth. He knew something was missing. But he very much wanted to see Jesus. The text says that Jesus walks by the sycamore tree. Now there's people all around him. It's not easy if you're Jesus to see out very much because people are pressing in and everyone's grabbing and saying and talking and wanting to be near him. And yet he walks by and there up in a tree is an adult man. And the text says that he says, Zacchaeus, hurry down for I must stay at your house today. The emphasis of that word there, notice it says that I must stay at your house today. It's a little odd. You expect him to say, hey, I'd like to stay at your house today. Or, hey, would you mind if I came over for dinner? He doesn't say that. And the Greek word there is an interesting word. It's a strong word. It's not, I'd like to stay at your house. I have to stay at your house. It's almost as if Jesus wasn't merely passing through Jericho to pass through Jericho on his way somewhere else, but that he actually went to Jericho to meet one certain guy, the most despised man in all the whole town, to meet the chief tax collector and to stay at his house. The text here says that Zacchaeus is over Enjoyed. I wonder how long it has been since anybody said to Zacchaeus, I'd like to come over to your house. I'll bet it's been a long time. And yet here's Jesus. This is the guy, everybody's like, hey, come to my house, come to my house, come over to my shop. 
Can I give you some bread? Can I give you some food? What can I do for you? Come heal, come to my house and feed and heal my daughter. Come over here and take care of the, hey, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Everyone's grabbing, talking, wanting a piece of him. And he doesn't go to any of their house. He goes to the house of the most notorious sinner in town. And the text says that when Jesus says, I'd like to go to your house, all the townspeople are like, what is he doing going to the house of a sinner? Everybody knows what kind of guy he is. Why is he going there? And they grumbled against Jesus for doing it. Zacchaeus receives him with joy. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also, he being Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, key verse, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this is quite a scene. The Son of God is at the house of the traitor and the most notorious sinner in town. There they are. We don't know if they're eating, had already eaten. He might have spent the night. It's the next morning. We don't know when it was. But in that moment, all of a sudden, Zacchaeus stands up. And the sense of that is that this is formality. I have something official that I want to say. I'm standing up. And... What he has to say, it's no passing comment here. He Basically, he confesses his sin and makes two vows as signs of his repentance. First, he gives half of all that he has to the poor. Now remember, Zacchaeus was a guy who had a lot, didn't he? And yet he gives half of it to the poor. That's no small commitment. Secondly, if I have defrauded, and any Jew that would have at the time been reading this story would have gone, if, (laughs) everybody knew the only way you get rich when you're a tax collector is not off the salary. It's off the skimming and the extortion and the fraud. He had defrauded many people. And he says, if I have defrauded anyone, I give it back fourfold. Four times what I have taken, I will give back. You know, the Old Testament law had, there was a law that if you've defrauded somebody, you have to make restitution plus 20%. And yet Zacchaeus says, he doesn't go to the law, he blows the law out of the water. Look what grace does to rules. Okay, Look what grace does to rules. And Zacchaeus' response here is that, Zacchaeus is a true son of Abraham. In other words, he is a true son of faith. And then he adds this, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And Zacchaeus is held up as the kind of person that Jesus came to save. He didn't come to save the townspeople. Uh, Let me retract that a second. In a sense, he did. But the heart attitude required to be saved is not what the townspeople displayed in saying, we're better than him, I can't believe they're going to his house. But rather, it is those who know they need a Savior. 
And that is why the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the fringe people of the day were the ones that gravitated towards Jesus and why he says to the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. The sick need a doctor and they know it. And that's always been a requirement for anyone to be saved is that you have to believe that you need to be saved and that you cannot save yourself, that you are a sinner. And that is brokenness, isn't it? That is why we come humbly to the Lord's Supper because it reminds us that we are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. It is the humility of sin That is the prerequisite to being an object of the salvation of this Savior. And Zacchaeus was a man who knew. Who knew that he was a sinner. I wonder how many nights Zacchaeus would have been in that big house. Having counted his money again. And thought to himself, is this all there is? Is this, is this it? Just money? How many times he must have thought to himself, what will satisfy the longing of my heart? I wonder about you today. I wonder if you can resonate with the ambitious Zacchaeus. Maybe you've had a little bit of success. Maybe there's some people that think you've done something. Maybe you think that you've done something. Maybe you have a little money. Maybe you have letters behind your name. Maybe you've risen up in your company. And yet, there is something missing. That was Zacchaeus. I wonder, would you climb a tree to maybe find what your soul was longing for? Now, don't misread this to say that in order to be saved, you have to give away half of all that you have and you have to uh, make restitution for everything that you've done wrong. That is not at all what this is saying. Salvation, the testimony of Jesus, and the, the whole story of the Bible is that we don't do anything to be saved. We don't earn our salvation. It is entirely by faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the story. He wasn't saved because he did these things. Rather, salvation came to Zacchaeus' house because Jesus came to Zacchaeus' heart. May I say that again? Salvation came to Zacchaeus' house because Jesus came to Zacchaeus' heart. And like so many other people in this story and down through the years and in this room right now, our story is the same. We have come, we have met Jesus in the gospel, we believe that he is the Savior and the Son of God, all of our hope and trust is in him. We believed, and Zacchaeus believed. The power of this story is the effect that this new relationship with Jesus had on Zacchaeus. Money had always been his idol. It had always been his obsession. He had, he had basically given up all the other things in his life in order to have money. 
And again, I wonder if that might sound familiar to you. Of all the idols in this world, and there are many of them, I would have to say, especially in our culture, money is at the top. Now, the Bible doesn't say that there's anything wrong with money. Money is neutral. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 And the reason for that is for a sinner, money is so easy to love. It provides all the things that we think that we want. When I have money, I have security. When I have money, I have a sense of self-worth. When I have money, I have a sense of superiority over others who don't have money or don't have the things that money can buy. When I have money, I have self-reliance. I am the God of my world. I am in charge because I can buy what I need. I have money. And that was Zacchaeus's lifestyle. And I think Zacchaeus would fit in quite well around here, don't you think? You put him in any corporation or any place really in American society, he looks a lot like everybody else who are trying desperately to find meaning and significance in the accumulation of things. Craving money and status. While money is neutral, where money sits in our priorities reveals who is our God. Jesus said it this way. No man can serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other, or he will hate the one and love the other. No man can serve both God and mammon. God and money. And the reason for this, friends, is that in your heart there is only one throne and there is only one thing or person that can reign on the throne of your heart. And Zacchaeus, his whole life, money reigned on the throne of his life. It was his obsession. It was his motivation. It was his God. It was where he got his meaning and his identity. Until one day, Jesus came into town. And Jesus said what nobody else would say. I want to come to your house. And we can only assume that while Jesus was at Zacchaeus' house, he was speaking spiritual truth to him. And Zacchaeus found in Jesus something and somebody so absolutely unique and absolutely wonderful that he believed him to be the Messiah and the Son of God and his personal Savior. And the wonderfulness of Jesus placed him now above his money on the throne of his heart. And with that, he thought to himself, how can I live for money anymore now that I have met someone like Christ? And with eyes of faith, and a heart treasuring Jesus above all things. Money was out, and Jesus became the treasure of his life, his worship, his Savior, and his God. And you say, well, how do you know that? Look at what he does with his old God. What does he do with his money? He uses it to right past wrongs, and he freely gives it to meet the needs of others. Half of all I have, 
I give to the poor. And I repay anyone I wronged four times over. Friends, when greedy people become generous, something radical has happened. It's like when you, when you see drug users throw their drugs away, or uh, porn lovers throwing their porn away, or greedy, obsessed tax collectors giving away half of what they have to meet the needs of others, Something big has happened. And I'll tell you what happened in Zacchaeus' life. Jesus became his treasure. Jesus became his treasure. And when that new affection took over, the old idol of money became disposable. Here's what I'm saying. What Zacchaeus did with his old idol of money evidenced his true conversion. Let me say that again. What Zacchaeus did with his old idol money evidenced his true conversion. Imagine the story. Let's just say the whole story is the same. Jesus comes into Jericho. Big crowd, short man. Climbs the tree. Going to your house. Goes to the house. Jesus leaves the next day. Zacchaeus goes back to his cartel. Corrupt extorting job the next day do we look at this story and think to ourselves boy Zacchaeus what a man he he was saved by the visit of Jesus no you don't say that why because his life would evidence that he must not really be treasuring Jesus because he's back loving money what he did with his money said it all and that is why Jesus taught about money so much It's because what we do with our money, more than perhaps anything else, evidences who or what is on the throne of our hearts. Enthroned Jesus produces generous Christians. Can I get an amen to that? a hard one to amen and frankly this is why as your pastor i think mission them 2.0 is such a critical moment in the story of our church and in your own personal story just like mission them 1.0 was and possibly someday mission them 3.0 will be whenever you have a moment where In order for kingdom advancement to happen, for people to be reached with the gospel, for the the name and fame of Jesus to be extended beyond where it is, needs financial support. It is one of those litmus tests for the church and for the people of the church of who is on the throne of your heart. Mission Them is about meeting the needs of people. Their spiritual needs and their physical needs. Just like Zacchaeus did with his money in Jericho. This is a challenge, isn't it? And I speak as one of you, uh, truly, in this. Because money is, it's an ongoing surrender, isn't it? As it relates to money. And I... I know this well in my own life and in my own story. 
And if I could just share something personal from my own struggle with this, um, I, I, I hope maybe this would be helpful. Um, many years ago, 14, 15 years ago, I was the pastor of this church. And, you know, one of the things about being a pastor, and it was true for me, is that you get, you get asked to do things, you know, kind of special things, outside things. So, hey, will you come and will you do this funeral, or will you, will you do this wedding, or will you speak at this event, this or that, whatever it might be. And oftentimes, um, especially when it's something kind of beyond the norm, there oftentimes is a financial gift, an honorarium that comes along with that. And I found myself struggling when I was getting these invitations to do these things, not I was struggling with calculating whether I did them or not based upon what it would mean financially. Not necessarily spiritually, although that was in there probably, but financially. And I, my conscience bothered me about this. It kept pestering me like, you shouldn't be considering these things based upon whether or not you're going to be paid for it or what's, how much they're going to pay you for doing it. I didn't go into the ministry. I came, went into the ministry to serve Jesus and threw a pine cone in the fire and off we go and all the rest. And yet I found in the process of this, this conscientious struggle in my heart. And I finally decided, it bothered me so much, I finally decided that I've got to figure out a way where I am evaluating these things and doing these things without regard to what it means financially. And the only way that I could figure out to do that was if I gave away all of the whatever came in. And so I decided that's what I'm going to do. And... I've done that over all these years now, and I got to tell you, it fixed it like that. It really did. All of a sudden, I was not, didn't even have to think about it. I don't, I, I don't get to keep it anyway, so it doesn't matter whether or not or what it is. I can just think about what's best, and, and what a joy that produced in me to be, just be free of that whole consideration. On top of that, over the years then, I've had this money that I can use in special ways to do little projects, help this little kingdom work out, do something here or there. It's part of how I'm doing my own personal mission them commitments is with, uh, with those funds. And here's the thing, friends. When we give it away, it forces money off the throne of our hearts. And you might say, oh, there's other ways you can do it. I don't think so. And there's certainly no way that is better to get money off the throne of the heart than to give it away. And then on top of that, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's better to, to give than to have. Whatever you give, you get more joy out of the giving than in the having, is what Jesus is saying with that. And I will tell you, that's true. That money for me, it's been like play money. Fun money. End of the year, here, you have this, and you have that, and you take that, and off they go, and I feel good about it, and yay, and fun. 
fun, a joy. Now, I need to add this. I've often thought if I ever had a kid, I might use that money for, my, for her education. So, hello. <laughs> Just sharing that because we might end up doing that. But what a help it's been for many years. <laughs> but let me ask you, what have you done in your life to dethrone money? Or your love for money. Or like Zacchaeus, to evidence that Jesus is your true treasure. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Chalmers who wrote a long article entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Puritans had great titles for the things that they wrote. And uh, it's still read because it's still true, and you can look it up online if you'd like. I'd like to read just a portion of it, because he talks in it, his basic point is, is that the, the way that you get rid of the old sinful affection is, that, is the expulsive power of a new and a greater affection, that the one expulses the other. He says it here, the love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity. And that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom. We have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart, by any innate elasticity of its own, to cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself to a wilderness. The heart is not so constituted. And the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Nothing can exceed the magnitude of the required change in a man's character when bidden as he is in the New Testament to love not the world, no, nor any of the things that are in the world. For this so comprehends all that is dear to him in existence as to be the equivalent of a command to self-annihilation. That's one you might need to read a few times. But if you get what he's saying, the natural man by himself will never give up the old affection. And if you argue with him, you tell him why it's bad, much like even this message for some of you, it's probably falling on deaf ears. You don't care. You love money. I can, I can preach all night long and I'm not going to change your mind. What really needs to happen is not for you to have 15 reasons that you shouldn't love money. What needs to happen is that you need to love Christ. And the expulsive power of the new affection will remove the old one from the throne of the heart. And nothing is as effective as that. Now, we're not told what happened to Zacchaeus. That's the end of the story. He's never mentioned again. But I have to believe an honest mob boss doesn't last long. And so he, he possibly lost everything because of this commitment. But we add him to the famous list, don't we? Like Mary, who brought him in her very expensive perfume and poured it over Jesus. Like Moses, who Hebrews says, 
considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Like the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus, and like every single hero in the Christian story who was willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ, Zacchaeus is in that pantheon of heroes. And of course, let us not forget the ultimate example of this, which is Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, that you by his poverty might become rich. I don't want you walking out of here admiring Zacchaeus. Whatever you admire in Zacchaeus, Jesus has to the nth degree. He left his throne in heaven. He left riches in heaven. And he came into this world impoverished in the human experience, taking on a human body. And he gave his life as a ransom for many, the ultimate self-giving for the good and joy of others. He died for our salvation. He gave of himself, not half of his possessions, everything he gave in order to ransom us from our sin. So I just wonder if God might not use this season in our church. Mission them, you know, the the giving of time, talents, and treasures that this is going to require for this next chapter to be fulfilled. I wonder if God might not use this season in all of our hearts to remove the old enemy of money and to expulse it with a holy new affection and love for Christ. I hope that he does. Now one final word. When you meet Zacchaeus in heaven, don't sing the song to him. Okay? <laughs> He's going to hear it a million times times here's what i want the bethelonians to do to thank him for his example to tell him how god used it in mission them 2.0 and i hope that we as a church follow in his holy example amen amen let's stand for prayer